Okay, here we are again for Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, in case you are just tuning in for the first time, we normally do essentially three parts to the cast. One is kind of political 2A news. The second is the uh, take our take on the gun culture stuff, YouTube, and all this other content, other podcasts, all this other kind of gun culture uh, uh, media that's out there, and uh, we look at it. We, we discuss it, talk about it, talk about how good it is or how bad it is. The third part is always my favorite, and that is questions and answers, and those are things that are uh, questions submitted by you and answered by me. So we'll get into the first part of it. Uh, for the political update, I really don't have anything to say uh, other than go out and vote. You know, frankly, it's just overwhelming at this point between COVID and debates and debates getting canceled and all the recriminations and all of this. Just go out and vote. Just go out and vote. There's really nothing you can you can say. And, and the, the choice... If you're listening to this podcast, the choice is clear. Uh, you can you can vote in defense of the Second Amendment, or you can vote for the Democratic candidate. You know their ticket, the bore and the tramp. There's actually other words I could use that rhyme better, but we're going to leave that alone. So get out and vote and and go. Uh, the next thing is the Bubba Gun update, and for the people who have not heard that, the Bubba Gun was. A semi-sporterized 1917 that came into my possession, you know, as basically a gift. You know, a guy wanted to get rid of it. You know, it was something that was never going to get finished. Probably started maybe even as far back as the 1950s, but it was irrevocably modified so we can never put it back into military configuration again. So the question is, well, it's still functional and it's made out of very very good steel and and it's you know got some value as a a firearm so what what do you actually do with this thing so we we basically had three three options one is you try to put it in, in as much military configuration as you can using an original stock which it no longer has and all the stock hardware and and maybe just mount a period style scope on it so you have a fake military sniper the second one is just kind of finish it off as a low-budget sporter, um, making it look as unobnoxious as you can, and saying, "Hey, it actuates a cartridge. It's reasonably accurate, and we're you know it's 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 functional for hunting. It's still a functional firearm." The third is just kill the gun altogether, and that is just take all the usable parts off it, sell them on eBay, and throw the receiver away. And uh, those are really the only things you can you can do. Three things. So basically, decided on option number two, which is completed as a low cost sporter. Um, don't really need a low cost sporter, but that's the cheapest way to go, and it's also the way it returns it to shooting to some sort of a shooting firearm and you know kind of interesting it'll be interesting to play with it it does have a 26 inch barrel so you know how the 30-06 round will perform with that extra four to five just maybe six inches will be pretty interesting it, it will be pretty interesting of course the edict on all this was do no further harm because the barrel was in its original configuration uncut the markings are are still legible. They're a little harder to see. There's been some, you know, kind of scrubbing taking place, but it didn't it didn't destroy the markings, so you can still see them. And you know the the bolt, and trigger, and and magazine, you know, all that kind of stuff is still still original. So no further harm. So because you know the minute you cut the barrel, you're gonna find a Remington 1917 all original, but with a roached out barrel. So. So it may, at some point in the future, the, the military parts could be harvested and it could always be, you know, at that point, uh, uh, terminated as a rifle. Or you could replace those those parts with something else. And, uh, you know, I don't think it'd ever be worth the money to do that. I don't, it's, with so many low-cost sporter rifles out there on the market, you know, even now, even now that they're harder to find... Um, you know, it's just sporterizing a, a military gun makes so little sense. 
but it probably did make some sense back when this one was done and, and like I said the stock is you know a very ugly probably early 60s maybe late 50s uh, commercial replacement stock and so anyway uh, that's what's going on with the Bubba gun we will uh, we will see it is now out ha having a one-piece scope mount uh, put on it and we have a couple different weaver scopes we're gonna try out on it I'm thinking maybe 2.5 power would be nice you know just make it a nice handy kind of rifle uh, well we'll see what happens it'll be it's a fun project to work on um, it's actually fun to you know take one of these monstrosities if you can bear to look at it one of these sporterized military guns and, and turn it into something less ugly that's that's a night a good feeling when you turn it into something more acceptable and less ugly so now the next next kind of issue is um you know ammo price gouging i think the latest thing i've heard and i have not yet seen is that nine millimeter is going you know, 9 by 19, and I guess it's the 124 grain, maybe the 115 grain also, going for about 600 bucks a case, case of a 1,000. You know, that's completely, completely outrageous because you can burn through a 1,000 rounds fairly quickly. Uh, another thing in the same price range is 5.56. A, a case of a 1,000 rounds runs 600 bucks. Um... This is very bad for the shooting sports. This is a very, very bad thing. Very bad for us. Because you will extinguish a lot of participation if you have ammo that high. I mean, people just can't afford it. 60 cents a round for a pistol round. That's essentially just ball ammunition. You know, this is not the high-end defense stuff. This is, this is simple ball ammunition in both cases. Uh, the kind of stuff that everybody likes to use for practice and competition. So uh, this is this is the what the low end or low lowest performance or most standard ball type ammunition is going for in those two calibers. Now on the good side, I've noticed some of the higher end stuff, which has you know really a low demand, but a low constant demand really. That hasn't changed that much. Now it might. It might, but it really hasn't changed that much. Um, there hasn't been a run on it. There isn't this supply and demand curve that's in there. You know, this this whole dynamic of supply and demand, which, you know, if you read on Facebook, people are saying, well, you know, hey, that's just the people selling, I guess, selling ammunition are saying, hey, that's just the market, supply and demand. Anything else is communist. Well, if you extinguish the shooting sports, you won't be getting those high prices. If there's not people out there buying it, you won't have it. So I would be very, very careful about price gouging. And, and what I tell people now is look at all the people who are price gouging. And in the future, I would shop elsewhere because you know how they're treating you. Um, I, I saw one place, 50 rounds of 9mm, they went 34.95 for. And that doesn't include shipping and all the other little goodie charges that, that go on with that. I think that's usually just shipping. But, um, yeah, that's that's over 60 cents a round. I mean, economically, can't do it. Just can't do it. And if you can't afford the ammo, you, people will not buy the guns. So the whole gun, the, this ammo thing is the weak link in all the gun industry now and they better wake up and smell the coffee because you make it price so that you can't so that a lot of people can't do it and they'll find something else to do there's a lot of competing activities for people who have disposable some disposable income and, and that brings me into the next thing uh price you know price gouging for center fire has been bad enough but you know 22 rimfire prices were just starting to return to some normalcy after really a, like three years and you know you can still find some decent deals on 22s but boy i will tell you that uh um some competitions now i know i just i get these alerts action challenge pastille challenge 22s the the competitive shooting industry may start going to 22 just out of necessity and that's going to be kind of the last refuge 
of all this I mean if 22 becomes too expensive then that's when you see people start dropping out I think you know the some people will drop out if the center fire stuff is too expensive others will drop out when the majority will drop out when 22 becomes too expensive and so um, it, it's going to be a very very interesting dynamic and I think that uh, it's going to bear watching a year from now I think we'll have a much better uh, um, a much better gauge on what's going on what's going to still be high and what's going to be what's going to be low if anything ever returns to low so that really uh, very quickly kind of sums up the uh, first two parts of the podcast and leaves a lot for my favorite part because I always usually have more questions than I do but I like to keep it at about an hour so I kind of cut off at about that one hour point so we do have one from our friend Clown Bear who says uh, he asked the question are, are the Carcanos that are coming in to the country now being imported are they good investments and there's a lot of different answers to that I would say though that the the answer I have is if you want it buy it just get it um, roll the dice that the importer has a nice one and some of them have looked to be in very nice condition uh, others look like they have some maybe some worn bores but um, they look to be in nice condition it's hard to believe that these came from what is it Ethiopia or someplace and maybe they maybe they have another source for them also but I believe these things came in from Ethiopia and uh, but if they're in nice condition a nice condition gun is a surplus rifle is always going to be something that will appreciate in value because collectors will want it if you're a pure collector you want the best looking examples you can find of a, of a certain firearm and historians people who collect for historical value usually they're not quite they don't really they don't really go for the pristine that's not as important as them being just original and complete and a little bit of wear here and there and 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 some some character is is kind of interesting to them uh, the ones that never I won't say never but the ones that appreciate the least are, are the ones where they're they're basically uh, in very bad condition and a bad condition rifle as defined by the bore outwards the bore is the heart of the weapon if you have a weapon with a bad bore it's 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 pretty much a goner but uh, you know these things are are probably a good investment it, I think I saw them at 250 bucks and when was the last time you saw anything of quality for 250 bucks and when was the last time you saw anything with 250 bucks on it that wasn't that wasn't labeled high point you know I mean face it so for I would roll the dice for 250 bucks or you can wait and, and buy it on the secondary market you, you might pay a hundred dollars more but you get to choose the one you want which you know that's there's there's some beauty to that too and uh, you know you hold on to it long enough you'll at least get your money back if not make a little money I don't know though in the long term buying a buy and I'm talking about buying a single example I, I would not buy a case of these things because Carcanos are never going to appreciate in value the way that like US military small arms do they're they're just not they're they've always been considered at the at the lower end of the surplus market I mean even with I mean they did cost more than the initial Moisens but I think um, you know you can still find them for under the price of a of a desirable uh, Moisen de Gant rifle. So they've they've never had a great reputation. They've never had a tremendous following. But you know they're very interesting guns, very very nice guns, and they did suffer from a undeserved, completely undeserved reputation for not being safe or not being shootable. And in fact, they they actually shoot rather well and they are very safe guns and they're quality quality manufacturers so I would definitely think that they're uh, uh, well worth well worth 250 bucks so my deal is if I wanted one punch it and get it okay next question is do you have any experience with older Smith & Wesson autos ie the M39 M59 and um, the answer is yes I do and we're talking the center fire not the you know model 41s and, and all these but the center fire autos um, 
I do have a little experience with them. I actually had a 439 for a few years. I, uh, I gave it to my brother. Wish I'd kept it. But anyway, um, maybe I'll get it back someday. But um, they're very good guns, very serviceable, very good, very good design, very durable, very reliable. There's nothing wrong with them at all. They, they don't look very advanced compared to the, you know, the, the newer generations of guns out there now. But they are um, quite, quite excellent guns. And, uh, you know, if you get a chance to buy one of those at a reasonable price, I would snap it up. Uh, they did get a bad rap for having, back in the old, you know, walnut and steel days, they, they had aluminum frames. They were some of the first guns to uh, widespread guns anyway, that had aluminum frames. And there was resistance to that, the same way there was resistance to polymer. And still is. Still is if you're me. So, uh, you know, that's they, they do have aluminum frames. They came in various guises of, depending if they were based on the, 430, or the Model 39 or the uh, Model 59 as to capacity and some of, they had some smaller cut-down type models and and everything else. And so, yeah, there's quite a variety. It, it would be actually, actually be a very interesting place to collect guns where you don't have to spend a complete fortune, you know, for, for probably 500 bucks a shot. If you looked at gun shows and used you know, used gun shops with a used count gun counter or something. You can probably find those things. Um, you know, as far as collecting anything else, these are these are a lot more reasonable. So you could you could make a kind of a very interesting collection of 1950s through say the early 90s, when they probably stopped making these these things. Um, you could, you could have a very cool gun collection of those. So yes, I do like them. Uh, I think they're they're great guns and and they're eminently serviceable today so uh, they're really very good so that's my opinion of them okay what do you think of CMP 1911s and do you know if it's still possible to get one as f well I'll answer the second half first and then we'll go with the first half as far as I know it is not possible to submit for one when these things came out and I think it was two and a half years ago yeah like two and a half years ago maybe or whatever it was um, they had an initial shipment from the army of 8,000 and they had to go through those and I think they found out that about 40 or 50 of them had uh, damaged frames and were not saleable so they were only good for parts that they could use to repair other guns so you 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 kind of had a 7,950 guns, something like that. A few were very collectible, and I think they you know, they took whatever that was for the auction site. So you had something. And the list of people who submitted for them was like 19,000 people. So, but lo and behold, a lot of people submitted but decided not to purchase. And I believe they're still on that initial 7,900-something guns. And I think they're up to the numbers like 16,000 on the list. So I assume that if they exhaust this list and still have some pistols left over, that they will have another submission and then maybe get another shipment from the Army, uh, maybe of another eight or 10,000 of these. Uh, my, my deal is if they're going to do it, they better do it quick because uh, if the bad people win in November, I have a funny feeling that this is all going to get turned off. So... You know, it is what it is. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, bet the ranch that there's going to be 1911s forever and uh, uh, just waiting for them to work their way down on this or subsequent lists. Now, what do I think of them? Uh, that's a difficult question. The, the pistols they sell definitely meet their description. So you're getting what you pay for. You're getting what you pay for. And it's up to you whether or not that kind of money is worth what they're selling. To me, it is. You're getting a U.S. military used weapon. You're the first civilian owner. And, you know, it's going to have replacement parts. It's going to be have been rebuilt. It's not going to be pristine. Um, now, there are people who are swearing that they're, they're getting those. But I, I think that that is 
not true. To be blunt, I think most of those, if not all those things, were guy posts on Facebook. Because, you know, there were a lot of guns like that sold in the 50s and 60s. And it's very easy to post pictures of one of those saying, hey, this is what I got, when in fact they they did not. I think almost all of them will be guns that are rebuilt. They will have a mixture of parts. And they will have replacement parts, like slides and things. That's just the nature of the beast. So you have to be, you know, accepting of that. And uh, for the prices they're charging, that's that's not a bad deal. And certainly the nostalgia of a 1911 pistol that was probably produced in World War II and, and was in Korea, Vietnam, and then a few subsequent subsequent uh, operations, you know, Grenada and a few other things up through, you know, even in Desert Storm, uh, that's, you know, that's not a bad, that's not a bad thing to have. That's, that's, that's a very cool piece of history. So I think they're definitely worth it, but it's, it's really up to you. If you want the pristine original kind of piece that has never been reworked and never had parts replaced, I think you're much better off going on the aftermarket, paying the price and uh, getting what you really want. Okay, next question. Do you know what happened to the Korean M1 rifles and carbines whose importation Obama blocked? Yeah, you know, I had to think about that. And, uh, you know, remember that was a big deal, that there were some M1 Garands and M1 carbines that were going to be re-imported and sold in the United States, and Obama kept blocking it, and, you know, all, all this now, you know, there's two ways that a U.S. military gun goes overseas and comes back, okay? The first one is it goes over as Lend-Lease or former military or a foreign military assistance, where the U.S. government gives it to or loans it to another government. And the caveat is when you don't want to use this anymore, you give it back to us. You know, very simple. We're loaning this to you. So you can defend yourself. You can build up your arm. Whatever. A lot of this went on during World War II and after World War II. Um, as friendly countries needed to rearm, they didn't exactly have, uh, you know, or as they needed stopgap weapons, you know, before later designs could be developed and put into production. They needed something. So they got a lot of World War II era uh, U.S. military uh, weapons to hold them over until newer weapons could be designed and produced. So that kind of stuff has come back, and that's where, you know, the Danish M1s and, and 1917s the CMP had years ago. Uh, remember, they had the big Greek importation of 1903s, and there were some Turkish M1s. I mean, when, when the countries are really done with these things, um, they've made an agreement. They, hey, they don't really belong to them, so they can't sell them. They have to give them back to the United States. When they give them back to the United States... In the past, anyway, they have gone, you know, through the CMP process and have been sold through the CMP. Now, there's another another way, and that is there's FMS, Foreign Military Sales. And if we sold it to them, then it is theirs. And they can do with, with it whatever they want. And in that case, I think that's what these Korean weapons were. They were actually sold to South Korea. And so South Korea can then, they're not going to just give them back to the U.S. government. They're going to sell them and realize some sort of money um, by selling them to an importer who can hopefully secure the, the correct documentation and permission to re-import these into the United States, to import them into the United States, return them to the United States, well, however, you, however you want to phrase that. So that's the two ways that these come in. And... You know, when it comes in like that, it has to be marked by the importer and all that, i.e. the Blue Sky M1 Garands and Carbines that came in in the uh, late 1980s and early 1990s. So it's, you know, it's a process that's happened many times. Um, it's the, the fly in the ointment is getting the permission of the U.S. government to import these things. So... Uh, I don't know what happened to the Korean ones. I haven't heard anything about that for a long time. So, uh, and I've never seen a, an importer that all of a sudden has a bunch. 
And I can't believe it would be an obstacle because they just brought in all those M1 carbines from Ethiopia. So um, maybe they maybe they were sold to somebody else, or maybe <laughs> maybe with all the trouble that's been on the Korean Peninsula the past few years, maybe they thought selling serviceable weapons might not be such a good idea after all. That they might have some future use for even obsolete weapons that are of of excellent quality and and proven uh proven worth so i don't know what happened to him i sure would like to see him though it'd be nice to have uh another uh another flood or two of the market for those things sure would be nice okay here is another question could the colt mon the colt monitor and that was the Colt Monitor was a BAR derivative, kind of, kind of shortened, with a big muzzle device on it, you know, muzzle compensator. And I think it had a pistol grip stock. Probably some versions did anyway. They didn't make very many of them. Could the Colt Monitor have been a contender as an infantry rifle in the 1920s and 1930s? Hmm. I would say immediately no, because it was probably way too heavy. Uh, but it was it was cut down and portable, and you know, a, a downsized BAR was an excellent weapon. As as Bonnie and Clyde used them, and I'm sure I'm sure other gangsters and and things did too, and and maybe that inspired helped inspire the the Monitor, or maybe it was a parallel development. I don't know, but initially I would say as an individual infantry weapon, it was far too heavy. But it could have been used as kind of a supporting weapon in a squad or it, it could have had some use but in the in the 1920s the US military was not really needing any further infantry weapons we had large stocks of Springfields and 1917 rifles 1903 Springfields 1917 rifles um, left over from the First World War there was really no need for any other kind of shoulder arms, the kind of things that were going on. There were a few little marine things in Central America and all that, but nothing. There was certainly no major war. And in the 20s, um, the, the military budget was just starved, and it got even bad, worse during the Depression. And the little bit of money they did have, they had to buy updated artillery. And at that time, the, the uh, Army Air Corps was the u.s air force wasn't around it was the army air corps and they had to buy planes they had to arm them they had to there was a lot of requirements to keep the to keep the u.s ground forces which was the army the ground army and the army air corps to kind of keep them up to date and uh there wasn't a lot of money you know when you have to buy tank updated tanks updated artillery and some updated aircraft um they just had to look at the small arms and just call it good they just looked at the small arms and call it good. And very few innovations happened. I mean, they went from the 1911 to the 1911A1, making a few, a few changes. But they bought comparatively few of them until the late 1930s, when World War II was kind of coming out as a possibility on the horizon, late 1930s. Then you see the adoption of the Garand in 1936, and you see the M1 carbine in 1940, uh, large purchases of uh, 1911A1s in the late 30s, and continuing through the war, purchases of the Thompson, I mean, Thompson submachine gun. All these kind of things happened, you know, on the eve or at the beginning of the Second World War. And the Colt Monitor was clearly not a leading contender by then for anything it was it was too heavy you know the BAR was still used as an automatic rifle slash squad automatic weapon but you were never going to have a a general issue rifle based on BAR mechanicals it was just simply too heavy and the ammunition with the magazines were too heavy for individual use it was you know you could have one in a squad but or two in a squad but you couldn't give everyone one. You would, your mobility would 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 suffer. So, uh, you know that coupled with the fact that reliable semi-automatic military-style rifles were pretty much being developed in the 20s, and and the militaries knew, you know, several militaries knew that you know it was only a matter of time before the engineering solved any problems with these, 
and they would have a reliable, decent weight uh, semi-automatic battle rifle. And, and you saw that in the M1 Garand, you saw it in the SVT-40, and, and you saw it in, in some of the designs that were held up until after World War II, you know, because the countries were occupied or something. But, you know, the French had one. Uh, the Belgians would have had one. I mean, it's 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 definitely the semi-automatic battle rifle, uh, which is a lot lighter than a BAR derivative rifle, was going to be out there. So uh, the monitor could have been used as something in the 20s and 30s but there simply wasn't the money and and frankly um engineering and design were were passing it by so that's a story on that okay next question uh have you heard about the honey badger ar-15 pistol with a brace and its arbitrary reclassification as a short-barreled rifle and the answer is I've looked at it. To be honest, I, I, I'm really not understanding it all that well. I don't see anything unique about this Honey Badger, which is an AR-15 pistol with the pistol brace, which looks like a little stock. I don't know what's unique about that as opposed to similar types of pistols with braces on the market. I don't, I don't get it. Um, Maybe the brace needs to be sold separately. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, pieces will be sold separately. So maybe if they'd sold them separately, it wouldn't even have popped up on the radar screen. But from what I understand, it was, well, clearly it's designed to be fired from the shoulder, so therefore it's a short-barreled rifle. I don't know how that differs from anything else with a pistol brace on it. But it goes back to something I said earlier, several, maybe even 10 podcasts ago, that... You know, the AT, you can buy these things, and the ATF can come out tomorrow and say, no dice, these are all short-barreled rifles. And if you live in a place where you can have a short-barreled rifle, it's going to cost you another 200 bucks. And you've got to, you actually have to take the thing apart and, and do some things, and then when your paperwork comes back, you can put it back together, and voila, you have a short-barreled rifle with the restrictions of a short-barreled rifle, which means you have to get ATF permission to carry it across state lines, and selling it is becomes problematic, and all these other things. So, um, that's what happens if you have to register it. Now, in some states, you cannot have a short-barreled rifle, because you cannot have what is determined to be a class three weapon and those are the people who are in the biggest the biggest bind as near as i can tell so i would think i would think that uh, this is not the last chapter in this and i would think that there's going to be some subsequent some subsequent uh, determination as to whether or not finally these things are actually legal which they've been in the past or if they are now in fact um, short reclassified as short-barreled rifles in the arbitrary subjective whims of the ATF and therefore you know people will have to either get rid of them or register them or do whatever it is they need to do with them but um, this is not a this is not a good a good deal if you're investing money in something and, and then it becomes something something different because of an arbitrary ruling um, yes that is very unfair and that's that's the only thing I know about that um, I don't know what the specific outside of the fact they said it was clearly designed to be fired from the shoulder okay but if it's got a legal brace on it the ATF has even said you can fire them from the shoulder with the legal brace so I I don't know it's it's more confusing contradictory and and you know that it's typical of the ATF they can't seem to make a solid decision anywhere okay here's our next question and it is do you know anything about the 50 caliber spotting rifles on the 106 millimeter recoilless rifle and the answer is um, they were taken off by the time I saw 106 they, they had taken those off. Uh, I think the original intent was you would have that and you could fire a 50 caliber spotting round and hit a target and then kind of know that your 
106 round would follow the same trajectory and you would you would hit it um i i think they were one of those ideas that in actual practicality just didn't work out because <laughs> the the thing you were supposed to shoot with a 106 was an enemy tank and it was normally mounted either on the ground or on a jeep neither of which <laughs> have have any armor so uh you had to fire the 50 cal round hit a tank hope they don't notice and then follow it up with the 106 round and and that would hope that i think the intent was it would increase your uh, your hit probability because you had already you know determined uh that it would be if you could hit it with a 50 cal you could hit it with a 106 so uh i think yeah that that never really was borne out in in any kind of use and i think that in the latter before it was replaced by the the tow anti-tank missile the 106 you know had been used in places like vietnam and stuff as you know kind of a a bunker buster or loaded with a beehive or a flechette round and used in the kind of base defense role you know if people are charging through the wire you you hit them with a couple of those and and uh, they're not charging through the wire anymore so uh, that was the use of it and i don't think a 50 caliber rifle would have been particularly useful uh, for that type of application so consequently uh, i don't really know much about them i know they had them i know roughly how they were supposed to use them but i don't think that they were uh, um, ever successfully used that way by either the u.s or any of the foreign militaries that that wound up with these things in the 60s 70s maybe even the 80s okay here's another question uh in the two gun matches that I see on in-range TV, issue load-bearing equipment and conventional ammo pouches used by most militaries don't work very well. Are they poorly designed? Well, the answer to that is no. They're they're designed for a different purpose than what you see in in matches. Um, in matches, speed is king because everything's on a clock in those types of matches, anyway. Uh, everything's on a clock so therefore speed is king so when you have to open something take a magazine out and then probably click the thing shut again so that the other remaining magazines don't fall out uh, that takes more time than just whipping it out of a purpose designed um, speed pouch that that things just pop out of and 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 go so the trade-off is that conventional military equipment, and we've kind of talked about this before a little bit on the periphery, is, is designed for, to go into very, very harsh environments. Um, obviously, if you were up in the Arctic and you had IPSC or some of these other or three-gun type of, of equipment, it, and you were out in the field for, say, a week, maybe two weeks, you would see the weaknesses of that kind of equipment in that sort of environment, a harsh environment. Same thing in deserts, same thing in jungles where it's muddy and buggy and uh, deserts where it's dusty. You know, you, you, the military environment is very, very harsh and unforgiving when you're out there, especially for weeks. So it's it's not just you know hey i'm shooting saturday afternoon and this stuff's all clean and it stays clean and and it and it always works uh the stuff out there is in the mud it's in the snow it's in the the horrible dust and heat so it obviously has to be designed to survive those rigors and protect the stuff that's inside it which are the the magazines and in actuality the the uh, 20 and 30 shot uh, magazine pouches for the M16 are excellently designed for that. They protect it very, very well. So you can go through some mud and it, it will not wind up in your ammunition supply. So that's, that's what it's designed for. It is not designed to be the speediest thing to reload for. And that's because the military, as we've said before, operates in squads and not so much individual. Um, it's not an individual timed event. It's you have squads that operate together, and while one person's reloading, other people are shooting, and that's how that's that's how that all works. And that's why they can afford and and really have to have um, load bearing equipment that protects the magazine. There's always the flap and the snap, or or some sort of contrivance that does that. And when you go back far enough, 
go back to the early 60s, you find it actually in leather. I've got FAL pouches that are, you know, that black leather that fit on some sort of a, you know, utility or web belt. And, um, you know, they, they operate the same principle. They're just made out of different materials. Uh, the M14 ones were canvas. The FAL ones, the early ones, were leather. The M14 ones were canvas. And then you get up into the M16 uh, and you start seeing that... Uh, you know nylon type type material so it's it's you know it is what it is i mean it's it's not design they were designed to keep stuff out and not necessarily to deploy the magazine in the fastest possible time and that's why you see them you know struggling when they're on the clock sometimes um with with some of that equipment same thing with pistol holsters you know the ones that the, a full flap holster was never designed to be a speed draw type rig it's and when you place the pistol back in you usually have some sort of latch or some sort of um deal on it that that click that uh, uh closes and click shut so you know there you are uh that's that's what it is uh you know and some of the pistol holsters especially the canvas ones uh, putting the pistol back in is <laughs> more difficult than than drawing it out, and and in those type of matches, you sometimes have to reholster, secure your your uh, weapon in your holster, and then move to another station, and redraw it again. In which case, the the time penalty for using that type of equipment is going to accrue, and you will not have a great overall score. So um, that's why it does not do so well. And um, you know a lot of the a lot of the stuff you see in the the armored plus P categories and all this is not designed that you could take through a mud bath. I, I mean, and nobody would ever want to do this. But if if you really wanted to see the value of the you know the standard conventional LBE and and you know magazine pouch type designs, you know those guys would have to low crawl through some mud or go through some sort of a um, environmental challenge where um, the advantage of having their magazines completely protected from that would outweigh any time penalties that that they would incur so that's what that looks like so that's why that stuff does not do particularly well okay here's another question what is the farthest shot you have ever made on target or on game well, game, I I can't remember it, but it hasn't been very, it wasn't very long. So I would say maybe, yeah, maybe game, maybe a hundred yards on something. And that was a long time ago. I haven't hunted actually in a while. So uh, that would be, that would be that. On a target, I, I can't really recall. I know, I think I've shot, I've shot at 600 yards a few times with M1A I've often hit things at, at farther farther ranges, but I can't really recall too many. Uh, one, the one I do recall was, simply because it was one, with one of my favorite rifles, the M1 Garand, was uh, there used to be a range that I would shoot at that had berms out, and the farthest berm was 550 yards. And someone had staked up a GI fuel can, an old, you know, beat-up GI fuel can. So you had the thing that was roughly about the size of a man's torso at 550 yards, and I was hitting that consistently with an open sight M1 rifle, you know, from the kneeling and the prone position, which was really pretty exciting. That was a lot of fun, and uh, uh, it was it was nice because the way that can had been put up there, if you hit it, you could see the movement even from that distance. You could see movement, and around it. Uh, the dirt was so dry that if you missed, you could see the the clump of dirt, you know. And and it helped to have a spotter. And and there were a couple guys out there, and we we spotted and we're we were doing it. But it was really a, a testimony to the M1 rifle that we were actually, you know, hey, we were hitting man-sized targets at that distance, open sight, and and not just using you know rests and all these other things, just kind of going from from two you know, kind of realistic positions. So that was, that was fun. Uh, another time I was with a very good friend of mine. We were on a range that had, uh, it was hundred yards, had a gong. And, uh, just before we we're getting ready to go, I had a pistol, a Ruger Blackhawk four and five eights. 
357, and I I was shooting 38 specials. And I had one round left, so I put it in, indexed it around, and I, it wasn't really a snapshot, but I just lifted up and fired very quickly. And I'll be darned if I didn't hit that gong. And a friend of mine who was with me was like, that's amazing. And I had to, I confessed to him, that's pure luck. Absolutely pure luck. Just kind of expending around and seeing seeing if it would be, as far as I knew, as far as I knew, the, the thing could have <laughs> 25 yards short, you know, nosed into the dirt. But I think I had the elevation uh, just about correct, you know, aiming, the aiming over the target so that even the arching, uh, loopy uh, trajectory of a 38 special would, would, uh, would come down and hit the, hit the gong. So that was, that was it. But pure luck. And everybody, everybody makes those pure luck shots now and again. But those are the two I can remember. And there's certainly not any great feats of, of marksmanship, but they, those were the most memorable because they were so much fun or, or just absolute blind luck. So that would be the way I would answer that question. Okay, another question is, what sort of revolvers did Wild Bill Hickok use? And I have to say, I don't know, because I'm not that old. I never, <laughs> you know, I'm not old enough to know what Wild Bill used, but I can tell you what he's reported to have used. And those were 1851 navies. Now, I think he was killed in 1876. So the 51 navy would have been getting pretty long in the tooth, because Although the Colt Single Action Army would have only been out for three years and, and chances of him having one is probably pretty remote, I think that he probably would have had some conversion cause, uh, revolvers because those, those things had been around since 1865, 1866. Those things started coming in. Colt then made the 1872, the, the one right before the Peacemaker, and then decided to go with the solid frame. And The rest is history. Now, supposedly... Wild Bill had a, a brace, a pair of 51 navies, and he would meticulously unload them and then reload them every evening. You know, I whether that's true or not, I, I tend to doubt it. My personal opinion, my opinion, is that that's probably bunk and that he had conversions, that he probably unloaded, checked the gun, and reloaded them. And maybe the conversions were based on the 51 navy, I don't know. But most of the conversions were built on the 1860 Army style revolvers. Plus, you know, there are all kinds of things. Even individual gunsmiths would would uh, convert certain revolvers to, you know, to cartridges. So I think that's probably what he had. I, I think that there are several revolvers reported to be his in places like the Cody Museum and, and probably other places. I did a... a a brief soiree with Old West guns and a foray into this kind of history. And uh, with the James brothers, who I'm actually distantly related to. And, uh, you know, if you want to stir up real controversy, talk about outlaw guns and which ones that exist today are authentic and which ones aren't, you will, it's, it's nothing but, it's nothing but more hassle than it's worth. So um, if, if the Cody museum says they've got wild Bill. Bill's guns, say, so be it. But uh, the thing you find is that there's all these reported guns out there. And in the case of the James brothers, it's even worse because uh, Jesse James's mother used to sell, buy old guns out of, out of uh, you know, shops, used shops in the, uh, in the town. She would buy up old guns and then she would sell them to people who, who came out and, and looked at his grave and all these other things. She would, she would turn some money by selling them for five or six times what she had paid for them. So, uh, you know, and those guns have actually become collectible in their own right because she usually wrote a letter with them. So that's a, that's a pretty cool, uh, that's a that's a pretty cool thing to know, but yes, there there are a lot of guns that are attributed. One uh, one person who I'm associated with, he's also related to the James brothers, said that you know if you took all the guns that were you know attributed to Jesse James, you could probably fill a semi trailer with, with them. So so there you are. But um, I don't know what he had. I know he was reputedly an excellent shot. And one of the one of the goals I have is. I'm going to do this out at, out at my gun club where it is permissible. I'm going to put up a, a silhouette target and go to one of our uh, ranges that's normally used by 
law enforcement, which has got about 70 yards. And I'm going to try to recreate the the tut shot that Wild Bill supposedly made, where he used a 36 Navy and hit a hit an adversary at uh, 70 yards. I think the guy's name was Davis Tut or something. And uh, I want to see if I can actually hit something uh, that that far away with a with a cap and ball uh, revolver. I don't know, I'll try the 50. I, I'll try the 51 and I'll try the 1860 army see what I can see what I can do you know so um, I've been meaning to do that and I hopefully may not get to it this fall but I will definitely get to it in the spring and and like I said before <laughs> the Democrats win I may be doing a lot more <laughs> maybe a lot more muzzleloading shooting than I than I figured on so anyway that's a uh, that's the deal um, you know I would if you really are interested in outlaws guns and old west guns the best place to start is the NRA museum and NR and and those guys there know all of the ins and outs of these things and uh you know they can they can kind of help you narrow it down they usually won't confirm or deny that something is but they can usually give you a pretty good idea um and, and there's so many wild stories going around i had a guy who came up to me and he had a shoulder holster for a star revolver and he swore it belonged to Jesse James because that's what they told him at the Tulsa gun show where he bought it. And, and uh, now, you know, it's maybe I'm just cynical, but I don't believe that you're going to spend 75 or $80 at the, at the Tulsa gun show and buy an actual authentic piece of Jesse James memorabilia, which if it were selling through the, the auction system or something would be worth at least several thousand dollars, maybe even into the tens of thousands of dollars, if it had the correct provenance. Okay, here's our last question, and it's it's a it's kind of a doozy. It's a, it's a good question. If you could own one historical gun which belonged to a famous person, what would it be? And I'd have to think about that. It, and that's exclude. I'll say that's excluding family guns because, the, the, to me, the holy grail of guns was the 1911 my grandfather carried in the trenches in first the First World War, and because he kept the gun, I actually have it today. So, so I have my holy grail gun, the only gun that that I you know wanted more than anything else. So I have that. But excluding, you know, family guns and things like that. If you could have one, most it would be and of course other people already have these, but uh I can think of a couple of candidates. One candidate would be George S. Patton's single action. That'd be a pretty cool gun to have. That'd be a very, very cool gun to have. George S. Patton's single action. Uh, Douglas MacArthur had a, he had both a 1911 and a, uh, I think a 1903, 32. Either of those guns would be very cool to have. I would have to say, though, they were all in front of me. Which one would I take? I would have to say the coolest gun would probably be Winston Churchill's broom handle Mauser that he used in the Sudan, and I think he had it in South Africa with him. Now, whether he... I under, and reportedly, it belongs to Richard Attenborough. Reportedly. But, um, you know, I don't know if that's true, how true that is. But that would definitely be a gun I would want to own. It would be Churchill's broom handle Mauser that he used in the Sudan and, and possibly South Africa. Very cool. He also had a 1911 that I believe he used in the, uh, in the trenches and then kept with him the rest of his life. Even kept it on his person during World War II when he was afraid he might be attacked or, you know, some, there'd be some sort of assassination attempt or, you know, kind of the eagle has landed, you know, type of, of situation. So I would think that those would be, those would probably be the ones. I, I'm sure there are others, uh, but right now those are the ones I could really think of that, that um, you know, if they were on the table in front of me, which one would I pick? It would probably be Churchill's broom handle. Um yeah, that that would be an excellent one. 
That and Patton's Patton's single action would be a very strong inducement to. That'd be a tough choice. That'd be a tough choice. But it would have to be one of those two. Um, I'm trying to think of other famous people who had a signature. Well, you could you could throw in uh, Theodore Roosevelt's. He he had several guns. I think they lost the 405 Winchester. Um, that he used to hunt lions with. I think that got lost in his Amazon expedition. But that would be a cool gun to have. His Theodore Roosevelt's 40, 405 Winchester. And other people have tried to get, get the pistol he carried up San Juan Hill. It's been stolen two or three times from from Sagamore Hills. But that would be a very nice gun to have also. That's uh, um, That was salvaged from the battleship Maine. Armored cruiser main. I don't know if it's a real battleship or not, but it was salvaged from the main and engraved and given to him, and he carried it uh, on San Juan and Kettle Hill, and so uh, that would be that would be a very interesting gun to have also. So those would be those would be really be on the uh, um, on the forefront. Another interesting gun would be oh maybe I'm sure Elmer Keith had one of the first 44 magnums. So I think that would be a great, that would be a very cool gun to have. And as long as you're talking about that, if you had an authenticated gun that was used in Dirty Harry, you know, the authenticated Smith & Wesson Model 29, that would be very cool too. And I think John Milnius has one, and I don't know whatever happened. They, they had several of them, at least two of them, maybe maybe not three but they had two, at least two of them so that would be a very cool gun to have um other than that i can't really think of uh think of much else uh they i was at the 82nd airborne museum and of course they their display on sergeant york because he was in the 82nd division in world war one which in world war two became the 82nd airborne division of paratroopers uh, they have him with a 1917 rifle, the, 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 his display. And, uh, you know, there's always been some controversy about that. He, th there was always a belief that he used a 1903 Springfield. And, in fact, that's what they used in the movie, which bears no reality, the weapons-wise, bears no re real reality to the, uh, to the actual event. But uh, they have him with a 1917 rifle. So... One of his sons, who may still be alive, I mean, he'd be be pretty pretty far up there, but one of his sons said that the father told him he had the Springfield, and but in doing some forensic research, I think they determined that there weren't any there weren't any units around him that had Springfield, so he couldn't have traded, and his the ability of him just keeping a Springfield with him when everybody else was issued the Model 1917 rifle was was remote, so. Uh, they think he had a 1917, but yeah, if you actually had the documented Alvin C. York 1917, that would be that would be pretty awesome. And uh, I think it was the M1 Garand 1 million that uh, they presented to John C. Garand. That'd be a pretty cool gun to have. But I I would. Uh, I would probably still go with Churchill's broom handle. <laughs> Uh, would probably go with that. Would probably go with that. So Churchill's broom handle, I guess, kind of, as I'm thinking my way through this, it, it kind of uh, still percolates to the top of all the possible choices. But there are some interesting guns out there that, that did belong to famous people. Uh, you could you could put, you know, some of the guns that belonged to Bonnie and Clyde and Dillinger and... and uh, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd and some of those some of those would be very interesting guns to have um, yeah so there would be that would definitely be some of the uh, more interesting more interesting things um, oh anyway so that's it for another edition of Old School Guns the podcast that tells you like it is and of course you can always uh, send us some comments or leave us comments on Podbean, which is our primary carrier, or you can email them directly to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com. 
Yeah, I get, I do get nonsense for still having the AOL address, but hey, it works, so who cares? Anyway, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>